Welcome to Soft Pass, hosted by John Michaels, a 30-year veteran tour manager and sound engineer for some of entertainment's most well-known touring acts, and Alan Tillis, a mild-mannered writer and entertainment lawyer by day and a rowdy musician by night. Join them as they sit down with songwriters, musicians, producers, managers, and touring professionals to talk about what really goes on behind the scenes in the studios, offices, and on stage in the entertainment industry. Greetings, fine folks, and welcome to another edition of Soft Pass. My name is John Michaels, and I am joined by my East Coast co-host, Mr. Alan Tillis. Alan, it's going to be a really fun show tonight because we have two of the nicest guys on the show. I've toured with both of these guys, and they both know each other as well. And I find it's always a more interesting show. It's a little better when the two guests have a little uh, background with each other, a little history. So far, everybody has been extremely nice. It's just fascinating how much fun this has been. And I'm glad that these are a couple of friends of yours. And I've actually been looking forward to meeting them for quite a while. So I'm excited. Our first guest is a drummer originally from St. Paul, Minnesota, where he and his brother Adam were in a band together in the 90s called the Honey Dogs. He also went on to play with people like Mason Jennings, Martin Zeller, the Bodines, Peter Frampton, Five Guys Fighting, I mean <laughs> Five for Fighting, uh, and his current position as drummer for Brian Setzer and his projects. Noah and I have toured together through the good and the bad. We've had our disagreements and bro hugs over the years, and through all the situations <laughs> that we've encountered on the road, he's always maintained a great demeanor and a really positive attitude and outlook on everything. He scores an A on the hang every time. His pocket is deep like Leonard Cohen. He's really a guy who's embraced a life of music and part of that cream that always rises to the top. One of the Twin Cities' well-known and respected musicians. Please welcome the very talented and charming Mr. Noah Levy to the show. Oh, thank you, John. Nice to see you. All right. Talk to you again, I should say. Right. <laughs> Our second guest is a Los Angeles native and a known abuser of acoustic guitars. He's guilty of this crime in all 50 of these United States and probably some places we shouldn't even know about. To make things worse, he usually displays the sickness on stages in front of all kinds of people, and lately he's been abusing on live streams as well. Some guitars have taken more abuse than others, like maybe the one he helped write Pat Benatar's smash hit We Belong on, or perhaps it was one that he used writing songs for the Bengals or Jackson Brown or Dionne Warwick that received the most trying time. Or it could have been the one that he took on tour all the time with his lifelong music partner, Eric Lowen. Or maybe he even gave a pre-abused acoustic guitar to his cousin Dave, who probably would have abused it even more. In any case, wherever my next guest is abusing an acoustic guitar, you can be sure that the benefit will be received by all in earshot. Once in a while in this business, from time to time, you run across people who are truly kind, and they care about you, and they care about everything around them. And when you're in the presence of these people, no matter where you are on tour, you feel at home. These people are saints of touring, and my next guest, Dan Navarro, is certainly one of these guardians of the gig. Not only is Dan a pedigreed singer and songwriter, he's also a voice actor, and you've all heard his voice in The Book of Life, Rio, The Lorax, Family Guy, American Dad, and more. He's even in video games, Red Dead Redemption 2, Fallout 4, Uncharted 4, and you're going to hear him right now. Uh, please welcome a very versatile and talented musician, a teddy bear with crazy hair and a heart of gold, my good friend Dan Navarro. So let's kick it off with something light. Uh, we've all been spending a lot of time at home during this uh, quarantine. Um, I'm sure many of us are cleaning, organizing, going through phones, photos, old recordings. So I just want to ask, can each of you guys kind of share something? And it doesn't even have to be music related, but something that in this downtime that you've uh, rediscovered or something you've accomplished that, you, that maybe you've been looking to do for 10 years or something. I've been doing housework, um, which I never do. <laughs> this Jew ain't no Bob Vila. <laughs> yeah, but you d actually, I saw some pictures. You did get a studio going. Is that, up, is that above your house? Is that an attic studio you have? Up yes, there? where I am right now. It's above my garage. And okay. uh, the electrical went in the week of the quarantine. So I kind of lucked out, got in under the wire. That's awesome. Are you having a lot of fun with it? Oh, it's it's a blast. My son, who's a musician, and I are 
working out here every day. So it's great. That's cool. Dan, what have you been doing besides 37 days of live streaming? Has there been a break in the production for the animated stuff? Are they still going full steam ahead? Most of the stuff that I've been working on is still in production because we're able to work remotely. I've been doing a couple of voiceovers for Shakey's Pizza in Spanish in LA for about 20 years. And so I do that about every 13 weeks. Oh, wait, we got to hear that. I want to hear that. Quiero algo para comer. Ven a Shakey's con pizza, pollo, mojos y lo más, lo más bueno de lo más bueno. Es, es lo que se te antoja. You know, PCM con pizza, pollo y mojos. Solo $9.99. Ahora mismo. Oh, that's good. And I, that's what I do. You know, it's, it's, and I've been doing that since, since about 2001. The Family Guy and American Dad Guy stuff is what's called Walla. It's background noises for crowd scenes, mall scenes, school scenes. Occasionally, we're also doing like people laughing in the audience. They really work as most shows are somewhere between 12 and 20 cues. So in this case, we're doing that remotely rather than in a group. The people who normally do it, it's a sound editor named Bob Newland, Bobby Kesselman, Nikki Breyer, and Megan Grano are three comic actors. Megan tours with Jim Belushi as part of his group. Of course, they're not touring right now. And the original casting director on this from all those years ago, her former boyfriend is a Grammy-winning engineer named John Paterno. They knew musicians, so she hired me and Davey Farragher from Elvis Costello's band to do this. And we get up there and do silly stuff. I mean... People who know Davey know that he's also got an alter ego as, as one third of Jack Shit, one of the best bands ever with Val McCallum from Jackson's band and Pete Thomas from Elvis's band. And it's a sort of faux country band that, I mean, I've seen them every Christmas and it's just a great show. Well, so Davey and I bring a certain different thing to it and we actually share a mic because we're used to sharing mics. Oh, you do the Beatles thing where you guys lean in and... Well, they only had four mics and five people. And we looked at each other and go, well, we're used to this. So we just do it. We share mics. <laughs> he wasn't on the last two episodes. He was in Europe with Elvis and he got sick over there. I think he's okay now, but he got COVID-19. So this is kind of a good thing he wasn't in. Oh, oh that's crazy. There was no way they could keep us apart far enough. So they shut down production, but then they came up with a solution to do it remotely. Thank God. Speaking of other projects, for fun back in the day, Noah, I think it was you and Adam, you and your brother did a cover band locally. Can you tell us how you came upon the name for that band and how that went over? Oh, <laughs> oh you mean Hookers and Blow? Well, yes. best band name ever. We had to change it, actually, because there was a Hookers and Blow in L.A. What? Um, but I didn't come up with it. I, frankly, I hated the name. What did the club say when you guys were trying to book it in there? Clubs loved it, but... It was a cover band. So like corporate gigs and weddings. Every time we'd play, we were a different name. <laughs> what were some of them? Um, Starship Super Blow was another one. Um, I love it. Hot Dogs and Buns. There we go. That's so many. It's a good band, though. I love that the name didn't fly, not because it was inappropriate, but because somebody else had it. <laughs> yeah. They had interstate commerce rights over it, so... <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dan, we were trying to book you with Denny Lane, and it didn't work out. But the reason was that one of your early jobs, early, early on, was managing the Moody Blues, wasn't it? I was the assistant to the guy who was looking after the Moody Blues in London in 1980. They were re-signing their management deal, and part of the deal was they said, you need a full-service London office. And this guy that I'd been working for as an assistant ended up landing the job going over there to do it. He was a go-getter and had an English wife. And so they sent him and I'm going, well, if you're going, I'm going. So I lived over there for eight months in 1980. The week I got there, Brass in Pocket was number one on the charts. It was an amazing time to be in London working in the music industry with some cachet. And people are kind of rolling their eyes going, really? The Moody Blues? Well, the record that came out was Long Distance Voyager, which went to number one. So that was a good record. So it was a great experience. I never heard that story. Yeah, it's one of the craziest things I did. I also knew that I didn't want to be a manager. Hmm. The telephone bills were not itemized, so I would call Eric Lowen every three or four days from the office and tell him what was going on. And finally, he says, why don't we join a band when you get back home? And that's what he did. He picked me up at the airport in October of 1980, and we were partners ever since. Huh. The, wait a minute. Wasn't there a point in time, though, where you guys were like, let's form a band? And then it, okay. it didn't happen. And then he formed a band, wouldn't let you in the band? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's happened more than once. We had this brotherly relationship. We'd walk through fire for each other if we weren't pushing the other one into the fire. Um, <laughs> right. It was really one of those things. After We Belong came out, a band got put together. I had been asked to leave the previous band because I wasn't, a, I was a keyboard player in it, and I'm not that good a keyboard player because they already had two guitar players and they didn't want three. 
I wasn't in the band, but We Belong funded everything. So I was like a half participant. Uh, I got a share of whatever would have happened and nothing happened. But Lowen and Navarro got started when I got frustrated with not being a full member of the band, contributing all of my publishing advance to make demos that never worked. And I finally said, I want a, an open marriage. I want to start working with other people. And Eric went, oh, hey, I got an idea. Let's go do that acoustic duo we've been talking about for seven years, just for the hell of it. You know, we got this other thing over here. Let's just do that for love. And that's what clicked. Pretty weird. You know, obviously we're going to be airing in a couple of weeks, but can you give us a, a preview for us, but a post view for everybody else, what you're doing Saturday night for the LA benefit? That's a bunch of pre-recorded stuff because it's all going from a single switching station of some amazing, amazing artists that are in on that. I mean, we're talking Mickey Dolans, Mickey Thomas from Starship, Smokey Robinson, Mike Love, Jeff Bridges, Vonda Shepard. Bill Champlin. I don't even have the whole list in front of me, but it's an amazing group of artists who have contributed pre-recorded videos. Some of them are live. Some of them are packaged. There are going to be hosts. So the hosts are Rob Morrow, myself, Mindy Bear is one of the hosts. Uh, a guy named Don Cromwell, who's got a podcast who used to be an air supply and used to play with Eddie Money, and a guy named Bill Jones, who's an actor, voice actor. And I think Steve Postel is going to jump in on some of it and basically be presenting these things. I got a question for you, Noah. When you say Ringo showed you how to play for the song, what do you mean by that? He was just a song player. He wasn't Flash. It was the right part for the song. I couldn't imagine the Beatles with another drummer. Well, I guess Paul was the other drummer, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's what I meant when I said that. It's just simple part groove. You know, it's just a groove. What do the Beatles teach you, Dan? Economical songs that you think have dumb progressions until you get to the middle eight. They make a left turn that when you try to figure it out seems really weird until you do. And then when you do, it's like, oh my God, this is so logical. Really the best, most economical, most insightful songwriting I've ever heard. But they learn from their sources, from Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Carol King and stuff like that. And what they did to it was particularly interesting and odd. And I mean, middle eights that would just go into these places like, where are you going? The progression on Day Tripper sounds like it's a straight blues progression and it's anything but. The thing I learned the most was economical, potent, condensed songwriting. Nobody touched him. Love watching Randy Bachman break down the beginning, the first chord of Hard Day's Night. I mean, I've heard it on audio. I know it's a video, but that's pretty amazing. I was just playing like a, I think it was a G7 sus. That's only the tip of the iceberg because everybody's playing something different. Lowen and Navarro's motto was, we try not to suck. <laughs> and it, it seemed like both you and Eric really gave a lot to the fans in terms of quality output on records and playing live, like almost like a sense of responsibility. Now, is that just naturally you and Eric as people, or is that something that developed while a relationship of your fan base developed? Because when you were just a young buck down near Baja, you didn't even want to get up in front of people. Right. So does that admiration of the fan come from the feeling of being accepted or was that more of an organic development as the fans started to happen? We enjoyed the attention, to be honest, but I think it was also the notion that if we don't do something nice for these people, they might go away. We cultivated that. We did it naturally. We never talked about it. It was never like, okay, so let's go spend time with the fans. We just found ourselves at the end of the shows wanting to hang out kind of like any band, they had their favorites. We were Eric people. And there was this group called the Cult of Lowen that used to like get really drunk and yell at shows. What is that? Yep. Bodine's had that too. Yep. <laughs> First time playing with Lowen and Navarro, my friend Jim Anton had been playing bass when they came through town. Yep. But the thing that struck me right away was here are these two guys. They knew the name of every bartender, every bar back at the club. It really struck me how... When they showed up, it was like they were everybody's friend. And it wasn't forced. It was just this very natural. It felt like it gave them joy. It gave them energy. I'd say you come by it honestly. Well, thank you. You know, to be perfectly honest, I get to hang out with people I really love, whose work I admire. We would make these friends. We liked touring. And we liked that we were able to do this because we were a little older when we got started. First time I played in the Twin Cities was at the Caboose for Booze in 1990, and I was 37 years old to, on my first concert tour, my first band tour. At this point, I'm going, I need to enjoy this or it's not worth doing. Right. It's bonus time. Right. And the other thing was we got to the point where we were playing with local guys instead of carrying our own band, which we started doing around 1999, about nine years in. 
That's an old school thing, right? To do that. In the Chuck Berry days, it was all about, he didn't know his people and he didn't care about them. They were just bodies. This was different. I mean, the music would feel different every night in every town because it was different players. We always worked with people that were really, really fun, really nice, and really good, or we never played with them more than once. And I mean, it's kind of a simple thing. If you played with Loan and Navarro or me more than once, it's because you're nice, you're good, you're a fun hang. And that just made the whole process interesting for me. Really, really cool. Plus, frankly, to get to be local. You know, to hear a name of a drummer or a bass player or something like that and go, yeah, I know that guy. I've worked with him. It gets people invested locally, too. It really does. Hey, Noah, who's sat in with Setzer that you've had a chance to play with since you've been doing that gig? You know, he doesn't really do the sit-in thing as much as you would think. Yeah, he avoids it. Um, well, I guess he's got like 38 people in the band already, right? Joe Bonamassa. <laughs> we were in Japan a couple years ago, and this huge pop star over there, this guy Hote, sat in and it was just this crazy moment like the crowd just went bananas he was like the japanese mick jagger but it doesn't happen very often with him dave edmonds that was pretty cool were you at the fine line when he sat in with the deans were you playing with them at that time no he (laughs) no (laughs) sounds like there's a story there (laughs) oh there probably is we won't get into but his comment was that they wore comfortable shoes he said nobody talked to him He was upset because nobody... I'm I'm all ears. Yeah, right. They just kind of threw him up there and gave him a guitar. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever been shoved out onto a stage, Dan, like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. More than once. It's really funny when it's an electric because I don't really play electric. But no, I've been shoved onto a few stages. The Dave Edmonds thing would have been a gas because I love that guy. And he actually cut a song of mine in 1990. I got to meet him twice. And it was, you know, memorable. But I've been a fan forever. This was his last live performance. Really? He's retired from playing. Well, so he said, and we were in Finland. He, he said, guys, this is my last show. So we did uh, Seven Nights to Rock and Rock This Town with him. It was pretty cool. Wow. He produced that first Stray Cats record. I mean. Yeah. So, Noah, I, I got to give a shout out to the guitar player from my prior band, Randy Feldman, because he's such a crazy Bodines fan that we did Angels and Dreams every night. Funny. Every night. Just loved it. Yeah. Those are fun times out on the road. It was never a dull moment. And San Francisco is one of the shows that comes to mind from the, I think you were there, but Jerry Harrison would always show up when we play San Francisco. Yeah. And he'd always sit up in that booth. You know, I'm mixing. The sound booth is like right next to this little VIP area that he's always up. And so it's, you know, no pressure. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just the guy who produced one of their biggest records, right? Yeah, yeah. Where were they playing then? Were they playing at like Great American Music Hall or what? It was the Independent. So it was like 500-seater or something. We'd pack it out and it would be a really fun show. It's always better to play to a smaller uh, packed room than a a bigger half-packed room, in my opinion. But Dan, besides your cousin, and for those of you who don't know, Dan's cousin is Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction and the Chili Peppers and almost Guns N' Roses. And I'm still curious to know if you know why he never showed up to those rehearsals. But Besides Dave, is there anyone else in the family lineage that has music pedigree? Going way, way back, Dave's dad played a little bit, our grandfather played a little bit, and my grandfather on my mother's side played. But really, we were the two that pursued that real, real actively. We laugh about the fact that people wouldn't necessarily put us together as family because the styles are so different. But it's because, I mean, I'm older than he is and I didn't grow up with him. I went folk, he went hard rock, but we've got a really close relationship. We've never played together, but once. The only time we ever played together, we were at a party at Donovan Leach Jr.'s. He was doing this revolving party when he was dating Susanna Hoffs and I was working with her. And so basically it was me and Dave and my brother, Johnny. We called ourselves the Navarro Boys. And we did The Wind Cries Mary and Johnny sang. It was really the only time we ever played together. That's crazy. Not even in the young days, like when he was real little. I'm 15 years older than he is. So when he was 10, I was 25. Oh, I didn't realize it was that far apart. Yeah, it's a big age difference. I lived with him and his dad in the mid-70s when he was 9 and 10. And then I went off on my own and didn't see him for a while. I taught him his first three guitar chords. And then I go live someplace else and come over to visit like a year and a half later. And he goes, hey, look what I can do. Going like, holy shit, dude. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fun family friendship. I adore the man. 
I did an internet radio show for him about two years ago that he invited me to come on. And he said, bring your guitar, play a song. So I start playing this song that goes one to four to one to four. And I know he's expecting we belong. And I played his song, Rexall. I'm running out of time. Don't make me say it. Sleeping pills don't make me. And he goes, no shit. <laughs> you know, it's our closeness isn't based on the music business. It's based on some amazing family experiences, some of which were very traumatic and that we lived through them uh, together. He went through a pretty, pretty hard time with all that. Yeah. yeah, he really did. And I was involved in all of that stuff. I was involved in every bit of it. From that standpoint, that bonded us forever. So consequently, yeah, people say, well, why haven't you played music? Usually when we're seeing each other, we're just too busy catching up, talking about how we feel and what's going on. And we traded notes about three months ago when he decided he was getting off all social media. And so, you know, we, we text. And when you were living with him, was that when you were working as a waiter? That was when I was working at Tower Records. Oh, you were, you were a buyer there, weren't you? I was a buyer in the classical country folk and bluegrass section, which was like really confusing in my accounts, but um, <laughs> kind of, man, we got a new Von Kari on uh, Beethoven's fifth and new Bo Bandy's coming out next week. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But it also allowed me to do things like, you know, I heard of Ricky Skaggs long before he ever played with Emmy Lou. And I was digging out Sugar Hill records and really obscure bluegrass that was teaching me a ton. It was the greatest music education I ever had working there. I'm still friends with one of my old managers and a few people that worked there. And this was a million years ago. But coolest job ever. The one on Sunset? No, the one. It was in Westwood Village by UCLA. You know, so many movie stars. We didn't get Springsteen and Elton John coming in, but we would get like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Mitzi Gaynor and wow. things like that. One of my favorite experiences there was waiting on a guy. He puts his credit card down and it's Jack Holtzman who founded Elektra Records. Mm. And I'm going, oh my God, you're Jack Holtzman. And he goes, yeah. I went, what you did with Elektra Records was amazing. He goes, I'm a lot more proud of Nunsuch, the, the budget classical record. I go, I'm the classical buyer. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. We get into a long conversation. We start talking about Keith Jarrett. And he goes, you know, that concert he did at Dorothy Chandler. Yeah, I was there. He goes, yeah, I've got a recording of that. Give me your address. I'll send it to you. Oh. I still have the letter in my files that he sent me about 1977, 76 or 77. You know, these are the things that, I mean, they happen in our lives and they kind of inform who we become. It's all pretty fun. No, you've done some amazing stuff. The first time I met you, you were working with Kurt in his band. And then finding out, you know, John Andrasik and Five for Fighting, well, John's wife, Carla, was my publisher right. before they got together. Right. The tiny world is amazing. And of course, I've got a couple of super, super, super diehard fans who are massive Honey Dogs fans. Oh, that's uh, funny. Angel Jane from Chicago. Oh, yeah, I know Angel. Yeah, yeah, Exactly. Yeah. You get it. So these paths cross, even though, you know, I don't see you as often as I'd like. But Although we have run into each other on a couple flights over the past few years. <laughs> Twice. 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 Yeah. Dan and I ended up sitting next to each other on flights. That's right. In the most random place. One was in Pittsburgh. I can't remember where the other one was, but it is a twice. Hold on, though. Was it Southwest or was it assigned seats? Southwest. It was Southwest. Yeah. We ended up choosing seats with each other. Oh, okay. All right. Weren't you with an Avalon? With Tommy V, Bobby V's son. With a V. That's right. It was with a V. With Tommy V. He and I play with the Nelson twins. They do a tribute to their dad, Ricky Nelson. Oh, man, that must be cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Hey, Dan, did you know that Noah used to cut class to go cut records? Did you know that? I love it. How early, how old were you when you started in the Honey Dogs? I was 19 then, but I was playing in clubs from when I was 13. Wow. My son's doing the same thing now. That's a long, so how many years has it been? Oh, well, I just turned 48. 35 years. Wow. 35 years laying down beats. You know why I like the drummers being on the show is because the drummers see, well, unless you're cowboy mouth and you're down at the downstage, you see everything. You guys get to watch everything. Best seat in the house. Yeah. It's yep. Best seat in the house. Our friend Ethan Chapman, who I talked to a while ago before doing this taping, he reminded me of this gig we did in Superior. Speaking of relatives in the business, we came back. It was me, Ethan, and Dan O'Brien came back from dinner and we walk in the club and we hear there's somebody playing your drums. And Ethan leans over to me and goes, whoever that is, he can keep a beat better than me. And so we come around and it ends up being your son, Isaac. But he was like four or five or so. He's really young. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he was, he was yeah, totally he's... tearing it up. And then I saw him the last time I was in Minneapolis. I saw him play with you 
And he's really developing as a musician there. And can you tell us about some of the proud Papa moments that you've had with getting to watch that? And Oh, he's, I mean, he's off and running. I hire him on gigs all the time and he plays every instrument. <laughs> How old is he now, Noah? He's 17, but he's, he's like a little prince, you know, like he, he produces, he plays every instrument really well. He's playing with all these blow away musicians, you know, the best players in town. Wow. It's great to watch because he knows what to do with it. He's a very gracious, sweet kid. He knows <laughs> he knows he's having the time of his life. It's a great thing to see. Yeah, I can imagine. He's you're gonna be walking in his footsteps pretty soon if it keeps going like that. <laughs> We're holed up in the studio and, and uh having a sarcastic seventeen year old, Dad, you're so stupid. You know, everything <laughs> Grandpa doesn't know how to run the VCR, you know, driving each other crazy in here. And then you just call up these sets or shows on YouTube with like 5,000, 10,000 people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, son, there is this. No, the, the kids don't get it. Mine was the same way when his friends started saying, you know, your dad's kind of cool. And he goes, eh, no, you know, he's not. <laughs> Trust me. Joseph was in the film world, wasn't he? Joseph is in the film world. He actually graduated NYU two years ago with a degree in film and got a job at a big talent agency as an assistant. And he just landed a job three months ago as the assistant to the showrunner on an Apple TV series called C with Jason Momoa. Oh, great. So, I mean, he's on his way if he wants to be. He's in lockdown, but he's working from home in Brooklyn. Okay. But he's doing it. And I got to tell you, he's doing well and he's a good hang. So I'll take that. That's great. But he's not the least bit impressed with his old man. You know, he, he grew up in it. <laughs> They're not supposed yep. to be impressed with you. No, it's what they know. Right, exactly. We've talked to a lot of musicians about this topic, a lot of musicians who have kids and they're kind of following in their footsteps. Do your kids also become desensitized a little bit to the industry? Like it's not so special for them because they see you do it all the time? I think he still is very excited by it. He understands a lot of interpersonal pitfalls that we've all seen a million times. You know, one of his first gigs with me, he had to jump in because the guitar player was too hungover and couldn't make it. <laughs> you know, and he was like 10. Never too early to learn a life lesson there. But he's, you know, he's been seeing that since he was a kid and he knows some of the pitfalls, but he still gets a kick out of it, I would say. I love it. <laughs> well, it's really smart that he's focusing on that stuff and not becoming like passe to the, the fun experiences that he's still got that joy for, oh, we got a gig, you know? Yeah. So for each of you, what is your best connect with the audience moments playing live? Mine's pretty easy. We had, and I still do, a set thing at the end of every show, which is my encores are unplugged from the middle of the room. It's acoustic guitar, so I can do it. We'll unplug. Tell them what it's called, Dan. TFA, totally acoustic. <laughs> the F is silent. Yep, totally acoustic. <laughs> exactly, the F is silent. Now, we did that on a 17-date Bodine's tour in 1993, and Kurt and Sam look at each other and go, right, and they start doing it. Every so often, they would credit us. They didn't steal the idea from us. We got it from Steve Wynn from the Dream Syndicate. You know, we didn't make it up. And the thing is, if you can do it, go for it. So they did it. But I definitely know that people would say that, you know, Sam would say, well, we got this idea from Lowen and Navarro. Occasionally, I wouldn't do it every show. Why, why should they? It's a cool way to draw an audience in, get right next to them. It's just something that we, I still do it to this day. It causes a connection, but it's also, they've got to keep Stone quiet or they won't hear me. When they're allowed to cheer, it's an explosion. It's pent up, so they get to cheer and it's huge. And that's what they wind up remembering. If I stood right next to them, Dude, five years ago, do you remember you stood right next to me and sang that song? <laughs> do I remember? Are you kidding me? Wait a minute. You were the one with the woman in the yellow with the, with the slight overbite. I remember her. <laughs> and the ponytail. Like it was yesterday. Exactly. I have a very different view of a show because, like you said, I'm in the back. I'm watching. I find with singers, their whole world is interaction with the crowd. Most of my world is interaction with everybody on the stage. I don't really see beyond the, the front of the stage. Right. Like sometimes I'll come off stage and I'll say, that was the best show ever. And the singer will be like, that sucked because they just didn't feel like they had a connection. I thought they were singing well. The band was sounding great, but it's kind of a different world where I sit. Going to the opposite side of that, what is the hardest thing 
that you've had to do as a working artist to not disrupt the flow of the situation or embarrass your brand or the band that you were with? Like maybe you had to eat something you really didn't want to at a dinner with the label or deal with some political argument and bite your tongue or <laughs> be in a photo with somebody that you're totally against. Have you guys had any experiences like that where you just knew you are going to have to bite the bullet? and Playing a show with Eric Lowen where I wanted to kill him backstage before the show, we got into one of our little best friend tiffs and I'm on stage and all I'm thinking about is when the show's over, I'm going to hit him over the head with a guitar, get in a cab, go home, <laughs> never come back again. And I'm over it. You were right on a Don Felder trip right there. <laughs> Just about. I mean, the thing is, I'm over it by the encore. You know what I mean? I admit I was the one being a baby about it. He would do stuff to piss me off. Usually when he would change harmonies, in the middle of a song and I'm like left hanging to dry and he's decided to mess with the melody. And it's like, dude, when you're doing the two man dance, don't change the steps. Noah, I know there's been times where Dan O'Brien and, and somebody will be get into a discussion about Republicanism or something. And I'll just see Noah kind of get up, grab a water bottle and step off the bus. I can deal with the political <laughs> argument. I, I've got no problem with it. As long as we're not being assholes. It's always want to keep it on a positive vibe, but let people have their freedom. So you got to kind of sidestep on tour when you're close with a lot of people who have different views and different... Yeah, and sometimes you know... I mean, I've toured with people where our politics are different, and we just never talk about it. <laughs> right. I enjoy, yeah. you know, debating with it. Yeah, when there can be a spirited debate, it's really cool. Yeah. You know, when we taped the episode with Elliot Lewis and Herman Matthews, I actually hit Noah up for some ideas on what to ask a drummer. And he hit on a good one. And I'm going to throw it back at both of you guys right now. There are always things at the gig, and this is related to the other thing, but not as much. But there's always things that can go wrong. Maybe it's some terrible monitor mix. Maybe you cut your hand earlier. and Maybe the drum riser keeps coming apart. What is the most nerve-wracking thing that you've had to put up with at a gig? We had a gig with Setzer. We were playing in Australia at a huge festival. 20,000 people, and the PA stopped three songs in. <laughs> and he turned around, he said, keep playing! So he did three songs with no PA whatsoever. You still had backline power? Yep. Okay. All of a sudden, you could hear the whole crowd go, ah, you know, it's like a big roar <laughs> once the, the PA went on. But you've had a lot of things like that. A lot of... Oh, you remember Farm Aid? Far, yes. I remember Farm Aid. blur. <laughs> We did like three, what, three or four songs, I think three songs at Farm Aid, the one that was at Miller Park. We sound checked the day before band takes the stage and he starts playing and and after the first like little bit i hear noah say something like it's like about a second and a half and i hear that snare coming back at me yeah yeah we're in a fucking spaceship big oh my god yeah sometimes you just gotta play through it dan have you had nights where you just like oh, this is not gonna get any better and i got 70 minutes to go oh, oh countless uh, there was a show in iowa city when the sound guy was doing something you never want to see a sound guy doing. Looking at the board, his tongue is sticking out of the side of his mouth and he's scratching the back of his head. Like, and I'm looking at this going, oh, this is not going to be good. This is absolutely not going to be good. I had a guy messing with the reverb, just deciding to have fun. And all of a sudden it gets huge. And I stopped in the middle of song and I actually went, dude, get your hands off the reverb <laughs> from the stage. I mean, come on, because it all of a sudden went from, you know, from like a small room to Carlsbad Cavern instantly <laughs> because he decided, I can do this. This is fun. Most of the stuff that, that is like that are people making amateur mistakes. Professionals, that doesn't really happen a lot with professionals. Most of the crap that goes on on stage is when there's somebody in the mix who doesn't really know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. The weakest link. Yeah. Sure. I've worked a lot with musicians. I don't rehearse. I send them the stuff and I say, learn the songs or don't. And if you don't learn the songs, bring your game. Well, one bass player in a festival in Virginia was lost in the weeds completely. He had absolutely no idea. Oh, and when bass players get lost, that's the worst instrument to get lost on. It was really bad. It was really bad. You know, but there's the anecdotes are really funny. I played with a dear friend who's no longer with us. He passed away two years ago, but been doing my song and I'm doing my big finish, you know, dun, 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 dun. and he keeps playing for like three bars. Dun, 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 dun. And, I'm, and I'm just looking at him going, I ended the song three bars ago, dude. <laughs> <laughs> we did a gig at the 930 Club and we started the set with Renegades by, you know, Sticks. And 
it's all acapella in the beginning. And we go to start it. The monitor guy hadn't turned on the monitors. Oh. Uh, it was horrible. I hate listening to that audio. When I was with Five for Fighting, we were playing Jay Leno. You're about to go live. They're at a commercial. You have your instruments ready. And when you come back, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Five for Fighting. All of a sudden, the bass is going. And I swear there were people repelling from the ceiling. Like (laughs) people were coming from, I don't know where, like. What's going on? Where, where's your other bass? And the bass player says, this is the only bass I brought. It's never given me any problems before. And so we're like, what? What? You know, we're about to go live. And he said, I'll just stand in this one place. It'll be fine. And we were so freaked out, but it broke the ice. We were so relaxed. And it was the best we ever played on television because what could have gone wrong already went wrong. And it didn't buzz during the performance. Oh, did I ever tell you my the very first time that I ever did a TV show? It was Conan O'Brien when he was still on network TV. The band was Citizen King. Okay. The guest was Jerry Springer and Jay Moore, I think, was was another guest. And I had never done a TV show before, so I didn't know anything about it. All I knew is we got in there early, <laughs> we did a sound check, and then they came to get us when, you know, it was time to go. And it's my very first guitar tech gig on the road ever. It was way early on. I didn't realize that when the show taping is about to start, they chill the studio down to like, you know, minus 38 degrees or whatever because of all the hot lights that are coming on for TV. So we left the instruments in there and I come out, we got two minutes to go before the band's going to play and all of the instruments are in the key of Chinese. Everything's out of tune. Oh, oh, oh no. It's an I flat. Yeah, it's just, and I'm struggling. So the first thing I do is I grab the bass and there was a bass and a baritone guitar. So it was, I think if I remember right, B-E-A-D-F-sharp B. I think, or B-E-A-D-F-sharp-D. It's not a standard 440, so you know, I'm trying to remember. And so I get the thing where I think is in tune. I walk off, the manager goes, is everything ready to go? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. They come out there and they start playing. I'm watching the TV monitor and the guitar player just has this... You know the look when you get when you're about to poop? Well, he had that look on his face. Oh, no. Oh, no. And yeah, oh. and just everybody's looking at each other so weird. And I swear to God, because it was his first time on TV, too. So when the show's over, he just runs back into the back and he's kicking this road case and screaming at me. And he's all really upset. And they come back and get him. And they're like, we're going to do an overdub. And then all of a sudden, his, you know, the pressure level went down <laughs> like, oh, Okay. And then, and what it ended up happening was it had nothing to do with the tuning. When he started playing, he broke one of the strings and it was a floating bridge. So the whole guitar went out of tune a half a step when he broke the one string. Wow. That's a rough one. Oh, that's <laughs> it's just TV show. Yeah. Nerve wracking. We man. did Conan a couple years ago with Setzer and Dick Van Dyke was on. We got the idea during sound check, like we should learn the Dick Van Dyke theme. But you know, it was a twenty-piece band, and you don't just get up there and go ba ba da. You know, you have to chart every right. piece out. We did sound check, did the song we we're going to do, but then we had to get somebody to chart the ten bars or whatever the song is for the whole orchestra. We get it at about two o'clock, and we learn it on the bus with the horn players, like all seventeen horn players. And- <laughs> We had never played it until we went live. So we're starting and Brian's like, wait a minute, Dick Van Dyke's here. We got another song we're going to play instead. So we did it and it's pretty nerve wracking, but it went off. That's great. He likes to do that, doesn't he? I've been watching live clips of you guys playing. It seems like he really likes to add these little things in. Like I think at the opening of one show I saw and he threw a little bit of Dixieland in there and he'll just throw these kind of ad lib little things in quite often. Is that just... Are you, do you guys know that that's coming? or? Well, you can't really ad-lib with the horn players because they read from gig one to gig 35. They're in their charts every night. Oh, okay. They're amazing players, but it is so scripted. One night, I kicked the wrong song off. It just it happens occasionally. It's just a brain fart, right? He had to stop the band. He's like, sorry, normally we'd all follow, but everybody's got the different chart out. And I fucking train wrecked. Yeah, it's almost like playing with a click or something. You got If you screw up, then yeah, yeah. Then that's it. There's no ad-libbing. But it's so weird because it seems like he's... It's, it, well, it's a well-produced show. I'll, I'll say that. It's really well-produced. Who's the music director on that, on that gig? A guy named Tim Messina. Is he related to uh, Jim? Oh. No, no relation. <laughs> 
Hey, Dan. Yo. Ken, I want to ask you something about We Belong. Sure. First off, Eric and you wrote that song in, what, 84? We wrote it in 83. It came out in 84. Okay. So, and Eric's credit, but Lowen and Navarro's first album doesn't come out till 1990. Right. So you guys were like writing together for a while before that. Just curious, when did you guys actually start? And then that specific song, We Belong, was that song personal to someone close to you? Was Eric or you, or was there some other inspiration for it? The lyric content for me, I mean, I wrote the chorus lyrics, Eric wrote the first verse uh, lyrics, and I wrote the second and third verse lyrics. In terms of how it came out, I was writing about an old relationship that I hadn't really finished processing in my head, even though we'd been apart for over a year. My whole intent was to say, it doesn't matter if you admit it or agree to it, we belong together, which was absolute BS, but that's what I felt. (laughs) I wanted to write a song that had the term we belong together and that basically said, it doesn't matter if you agree or not, that's the deny or embrace. So I kind of worked into that and had the idea that I wanted to do we belong to these other things. But I had that sketch in my head as I was trying to process this relationship with this person who has turned out to be utterly meaningless in my life, but I was still obsessing about it over a year later. For his part, Eric had started the whole chord progression when I got there. It felt like something I could write to. And I write this lyric and then I stick it under some papers and he goes, I want to see that. And I went, no, 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 I'm not ready for you to see it. <laughs> and we get into one of our little tips. Come on, man. No, man. Come on, man. No, man. And I had done a performance class with a woman named Liz Lewis earlier that day where she said, here's your problem, dude. Now, at the point, by the way, that we wrote that, I had quit a band I was in with Eric. I was 31 years old. I had given up music. I was working in advertising. And we stopped speaking. He calls me two months after we stopped speaking out of the blue and said, let's write a song. (laughs) And I'm going, write a song? I want to run over you with my car. You know, I'm mad at you. But I also realized I wasn't doing anything. And if my dream is dead, fine, but here's a guy who wants to write with you, just shut up and go do it. So I went to his house. I had gone to do this lesson with Liz right beforehand. And she says, your problem, brother, is you're editing yourself. You're not letting yourself do what you're feeling. You're too busy caring about what other people think instead of just letting it out. So I told him about it. And then we start writing. And I hide this lyric. And he finally goes, remember what Liz said? Let me see it. So I pulled it out from underneath. And he goes... I don't, I don't like this rambling bit here, but this, we belong to the light. We belong to the thunder. That's good. Excuse me a second. Goes in the other room, comes out with the first verse. And I went, I know this story. Blasted out the second verse. Third verse was the part he didn't like. And we were done in 90 minutes, literally 90 minutes Wow. from start to finish. We didn't know what was going to happen. We just knew this is pretty good. This is better than anything we've ever done. Our friendship was reconciled. We started getting together every week at the same time to try to make lightning strike again. And he started taking it around to publishers. And damned if one of them didn't end up, one of the publishers stuck in a box of tapes to Pat Benatar and she pulls it out like a lottery ticket. And our lives were changed. Lone and Navarro had a decent career, but the band never made it to that other level. Right. Did you ever wrestle with the fact that, you know, your songs bolstered others' careers and Lowen and Navarro didn't rise like that? Or were you guys just like Bacharach and Randy Newman and you just wanted to write great songs? And We weren't resentful. We were disappointed. Part of it, okay, so we were pals with the Bodines. We would listen to Kurt and Sam go, man, we can't get past 250,000 units. And we're going, dudes, we can't get past 50,000 units. It's all relative on what you do and what you enjoy. We were grateful to be there, but we became songwriters because our bands didn't make it. And then when we give up trying to make it with the band is when the band happened. So we just kept going. Like I said, we didn't resent it, but it was disappointing. Let it go. And if it loves you, <laughs> it'll, yeah. it'll come back. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, here's the crazy thing. I was older when I started. I was 31 when I wrote We Belong. I was 37 when I made the first album. And I'm 67 now and I'm still touring and I still get gigs and I still have loyal fans. So I got something kind of better. I've got friends in bands that are hits. You know them. We could talk about them, but I don't want to say anything bad about them because it's not about them. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I'm serious. uh, That um, People that have written pretty big hits, but they can't really do it now. They can't get a bus. They can't afford a crew. I go out by myself. I know we haven't touched on it, but your partner, Eric, passed away from complications from ALS in 2009, was it? He died in 2012. He he, He retired in 2009. 2012. Yeah. 
you guys stuck together to the end. I remember even on those Bodine dates, I would run downstairs or backstage or whatever, and you'd be Skyping with Eric backstage. And you were, it was through thick and thin. We were besties and it was through thick and thin. I started independently going off on my own when we did those five dates in Wisconsin where I opened solo for the acoustic Bodines. Mm-hmm. You know, he never asked how it went. He never said, hey, they like you out. He didn't want to know. A little bit like Ruby, don't take your love to town. You don't want to know what's going on because he couldn't do it. Not because he didn't want to. But, you know, we stuck together through thick and thin. And by the time he was retired, I was ready to dive head first. I love doing what I'm doing. I'm over outcome. Outcome doesn't matter anymore. It's process Mm. for me. It's profitable. You know, I enjoy the job. I like the people I get to do it with. I like the musicians I play with. You know, I didn't get to be a rock star. I didn't get to have a huge record or a huge hit as an artist. I also don't have a whole lot of problems. I don't have six (laughs) ex-wives. I don't have a million dollar nut. So it turned out fine. I'm happy with what turned out. So I got something better than what I dreamed of. I got something I could actually manage. If I'd been a big ass star, you guys, I'd be dead. Yeah. Or, you know. Well, look what happened to Eddie Money. I mean, he didn't need to be playing as long as he did. Right. I mean, he needed to for personal reasons of his. He didn't need to play as late as he did. Right. And that's, and I still like the job. I'm sitting here. I've been home since, since March 9th. I was out three weeks a month the first three months of this year, more than ever, even more than the Lowen and Navarro days to a degree. And I like the job. If I cancel it down to liking the job, then I don't really care how it goes. I just, you know. I absolutely agree with you. Absolutely agree. You better like the process if you're going to do it. Otherwise, if you just want the trappings, you're in the wrong business. It might be good for a while, but then it's going to turn sour. And, you know, it's great being on this podcast with you, Noah, because, again, the main thing that we liked, we always played with good musicians, but we always played with musicians who were a great hang. Yeah. And the time you spend, you walk away from it going, that was fucking great well you know as my friend says do they give good bus <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and we have people there's a guy i played with i won't name him because he was a good player and a good guy but he was a little bit stiff and uptight you know and and spent most of his time in the bunk the only comedy made is he's a very handsome man so on the road with us basically four nights in a row he did very well and he goes i swear to god hanging with you guys i feel like a walking glam you know how about enjoying this how about how about laughing and if you don't laugh on the road it's just i mean come on yeah. some of the some of my favorite stories are the bad shit right right but there's just something about the hang it it transitions into the performance if everybody is just I've been doing these package shows with a lot of these 70s bands. And Dan, you're from this kind of this era too. Is They come from this era where everybody knew everybody's music and they played with each other all the time. So oh, heck yeah. we'll be backstage and the guys from Pure Prairie League and Orleans and Firefall, just any combination of them will be sitting around with acoustic guitars just playing classic songs. Just, just to do it. Just to have a vibe. And heck yeah. It's really a different kind of atmosphere than when people are uptight or it's or everybody's separated or there's no, you know what I mean? I like that thought. Well, there were fewer silos in those days. Those bands you talk about, I probably know people in every one of them and yeah. have gotten to work with them and gotten to hang with them and feel like they're brothers and sisters. And But that's what it's all about. That is really, I wanted to be part of a community and I got that. Yeah, I didn't become a hit artist. I'm way over that. You know, I'm friends with Noah Levy, you know. <laughs> right. What's the hang like on Setzer, Noah? It depends. You know, I'm in two bands with him. One is the Rockabilly Riot, which is just a four-piece bass, piano, guitar, and drums. And the other one... It's like the new Stray Cats. It's a really fun band. That one, you just get out there and you just go for it every night. The orchestra is a very different animal. It's, you know, I'm quarterbacking a 19-piece band. What is that, like four buses? Four buses, yeah. Two semis. It's a big show, and it has to be, it's a different discipline. So the piano player and bass player and I are kind of from this rock and roll world. You guys hang out in the back and congregate, smoke cigarettes. Well, there's two buses. <laughs> there's there's the up with people bus and the fuck the people bus. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the up with people bus. Half of us drank, half of us didn't, and it was men and women and... It felt very sane. The other one was just alcoholic 
horn players. Yes, we are. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> when you have a good group of people, when everybody gets along and it's fun, it can be one of the best experiences in your life, really. There's certain tours that we've been on where just the things we've got to, to go check out and you know, Devil's Tower and Crater Lake and all kinds of cool stuff that you get to see on one of those tours. It's nothing like it, man. Yeah. So I've been waiting all night to get to this point. Soft Pass Trivia is a segment where we ask 10 quiz questions. For each correct answer, you will be awarded 10 points. Uh, On the screen in front of you, by your name, you will see a button with a hand symbol on it to buzz in. You will click the hand symbol, and Alan is the judge, and uh, he's going to keep score. And uh, if someone buzzes in early on the question, Alan will stop me, yell your name, and if you get it wrong, then I'll finish reading the question for the other person, just like Jeopardy. Like Jeopardy, at the last question, I have two separate questions, one for each of you for the last question. You can wager all, some, or none of your earned points to try and beat the other guy for bragging rights. Someday we're going to have fabulous prizes like gold bond powder and (laughs) coffee and gaff tape and moon gels. All that stuff. But for now, it's bragging rights. Whatever happens, Dan, I love you. Gold Bond GB stands for gig butt. <laughs> right? <laughs> I thought it was swamp ass. If you're in the know, the stuff that you want to use, a product called Glide. And what it is, it's just a stick of lanolin. But it's, it's a lot better than the Gold Bond, just from experience. Uh, the theme for trivia this uh, episode is On the Road. We'll start with, you guys want to try your, your buzzers first here to make sure they're working? Okay, there's Noah, and there's Dan. All right, here we go. So question one. What Virginia music venue has a basketball court, eight jacuzzis, a rec room with video games in it, a rooftop basketball court as part of its green room amenities? Noah. Is that the Norva? That's right. Ten points for Noah. I don't, know, I don't know if Dan's ever played at the Norva, have you? No, I've never played there. I was going to actually say something at Pier 6 or something like that. But no, that's Maryland. That's not Virginia. Yeah, that's right. Baltimore. All right. You might get this one then. Question two. Which of the following cities has never had a venue called the Knitting Factory? A, Reno. B, Los Angeles. C, Spokane. D, Chicago. Damn. I'm going to say Reno. Reno is wrong. There's never been a knitting factory in Chicago. There was one in Reno. It closed. There's a Los Angeles one, a Spokane, and a Boise one, and uh, Brooklyn now. Oh, I guess I should have gave that to Noah. He could have got it. Yes. Oh, well. (sighs) I'm sorry, Noah. (laughs) I'm okay. We'll move on. (laughs) I'm fine. All right. Question three. What is the address... Of CBGB's in Manhattan. Dan. Number one, Bowery. No. Noah? Eight, Bowery? No, it was 315, Bowery. But you guys are close. It was, it was on Bowery. You, I'm sure you both played there. Oh, yeah. My first time there, I walked in the door and stepped in dog shit. just just as i crossed the threshold hilly's dog took a shit on the floor and i slid right through it i i i shit you not i'm not surprised you didn't eat you didn't eat hilly's chili though did you i hope no joey ramone was there that night too that was pretty exciting that was the scummiest venue i ever played actually absolutely I never went into the bathroom there. I always left and went down to Katz's Deli or something. All right. Question four. On April 3rd, 1970, Joe Cocker played a double set at a nightclub that would go on to be world famous. What nightclub did The Depot become? Oh, that's... <sighs> Noah! First Avenue. <laughs> I can't believe it took this long. Yes. That was a Homer question. Here's one that you'll both have an equal shot at. If you are flying into Orlando, Florida, what is your three-letter airport code? No, no. Um. Good God. At this point, they're looking it up on their phones. Yeah, no, I'm not looking it up. <laughs> 
you are flying into Orlando, Florida, what is your three-letter? Dan. I'm going to say um, O-L-A. Incorrect. Noah? O-R-L. No, it's M-C-O. Oh, my God. Okay. This all goes back to the original name of the airport. You know, that went through my mind, and I'm sitting there going, no, no, that's not right. That's Kansas City. <laughs> and Kansas City's M-C-I. M-C-I, right. I can't believe I almost got it, but I didn't. I mean, okay. Here's a pretty easy one. On tour, if I tell you I'm sitting in the jump seat, where am I? Noah. Next to the driver. Yes, in the passenger seat of the bus. Dan, you were just a half a second too late. I would have gotten it wrong. I was going to say you were sitting in the limo in the seat facing the back of the car. That's a different kind of jump seat. It was close. That would be a better place to be. (laughs) Question number seven. If I am standing on the stage and walking away from the audience, what direction am I walking? Dan. Upstage. Yes. You got 10 points, Dan. Finally. All right. Question eight. You got to catch up, Navarro. Let's go. (laughs) Number eight. Who is going to Graceland? Oh, God. That was close. I think I got to give it to Dan. Paul Simon. Paul Simon or Willie Nelson would have been accepted as well. 20 points. It's almost tie. Here's the big ninth question before we get to wager. If you flew in from Miami Beach on the British Overseas Airways Corporation, what country would you be in? Oh. Ah. Uh. Say that one more time. If you flew in from Miami Beach on the British Overseas Airways Corporation, what country would you be in? Noah. Back in the USSR? That's right. I was sitting there going, what country doesn't exist anymore? BOAC isn't around anymore. But you got it, right? I didn't think Beatles. <laughs> so final question, Dan, uh, I'm going to assume you're going to bet 20 points your entire... <laughs> yes, indeed. I'll bet them all. Bet the, bet the farm. Noah, what are you going to do? You know what? I'm just going to lay it all on the table. I'm going to go for oh. it. Or he's going big. All right. Dan, here is your final question to gain 40 points and to one-up Noah just for now. Dan, who has Rural Scenes and Magazines and Richard Pryor on the video on tour? Oh, that would be Jackson Brown. That is correct. Jackson Brown. Noah, if you get this right, you'll beat Dan. If you don't get it right, Dan will win. Here's your final question. In what southwestern town might you find yourself standing on a corner in when a girl in a flatbed Ford slows down to take a look? Winslow, Arizona. That's correct. If you had missed that, I would never speak to you again. (laughs) (laughs) Tucson? Jerome? Hey, Jerome's a great place. Yeah, it is actually. (laughs) Anyway, it's been a blast having you guys on the show. In the show links here, I'm going to put up all kinds of links where you can see Noah play and some of his work with earlier bands he's been in, his Twitter and all that. And there's also Dan, stuff on Dan, We Belong, the official video for... Uh, that uh, some stuff from American Dad and other voice acting stuff he's done. And there'll also be a link to donate to help fight ALS if you want to do that. Very cool. Yeah, I gave you that link. That's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, your website and your Instagram will be up. And Dan, this will air a little bit later. You're doing these uh, COVID broadcasts, but are you going to archive them anywhere? Are they just up on Facebook? Can you just go see them anytime? They're up on Facebook under hashtag songs from the Corona Zone. They're all gathered. So you can catch all of them. It's been 37 of them today. I'm going to keep going until I run out of steam because I keep coming up with themes and people keep showing up. And so I'm disinclined to stop. And because I don't know when we're getting back out there. I mean, I've got four shows booked for uh, July in the Twin Cities uh, at this little 45-seat place called The Warming House. And if it happens, then I'll have time to kill Noah and we'll spend some time if you're in town. Come stay at my house. We'll have a barbecue. That'd be really cool, man. There's an opportunity if you want to see Dan and Noah together. I'm sure Noah will be at the show if it happens in Minneapolis there. It will. It will. I'm hoping it happens, but, you know, better safe and able to live to tour another day. Yep. This is some serious stuff that we're dealing with, and we're going to get through it. We are going to get through it. Soft Pass is a Wiggle the Wire audio production. We'd like to thank our bus drivers, Kent C. Strait and Miles Tugo, our audio advisors, Stereo O'Blaren and Mike Raffone, 
Studio lights by Annie Position. Our house electrician is Maxwell Power. Our union steward, Manny Kin. Our monitor engineer, Tad Moore. Our music transposer, Betty Dropped It. Our staff bartenders, Ryan Koch and Brandy D. Cantor. Our bluegrass music supervisor, Amanda Lynn. Our accountant, Owen Cash. Our cleanup crew supervisor, Armand Hammer. Catering by Candace Spencer and Bill Loney. Our valet, Ford Parker. And our guitar tech, Rusty Steele. For Alan Tillis, I'm John Michaels saying thanks for listening. This has been Soft Pass. Find us on Facebook at Soft Pass Podcast. Special thanks to Blue Microphones and the law firm of Shulman Rogers. Theme music by the Sam Giannis Band. Join us again next time for more stories about the entertainment industry.